Hello, this is Dr. Ed Hill, host of This Week in the Word, where we grow in our knowledge of the Word of God and our walk with Christ. We're happy you joined us in our episode today. We're actually beginning a new series, The Great Rapture Debate. Yes, sir, Bob, I'm getting right into that today. So we're going to go to the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. But uh, actually, before we turn to that, I'm going to look first and uh, you don't have to go there if you don't want to, but uh, I'll read it. We're, we're going to go first, actually, to the book of Acts in the New Testament, Acts 17. When we begin to talk about the great rapture debate that's raging in the church now as to whether there will even be a rapture or when that happens and all of the questions and debating around that, I want you to know that none of that is new although it is greatly intensified in our time as I make this podcast, it's actually as old as the church because there was a great rapture debate going on even when Paul wrote the letter to the Thessalonian church in Greece. And many of the questions that are abounding today were present then. So that would be a great church to go back to because it will be a model church If you want to give this episode a title, it will be a model church concerning the doctrine of the rapture. Well, let's find out how that church even came into existence. As you might suspect, if you've been around the church and Christianity for a while, probably the Apostle Paul has something to do with that. And you know what? You'd be right, because we read in Acts 17 And I'm just going to shoot through this really quick. Here's how that church got started. Uh, Paul had left Philippi where he had started a church there, and he came to Thessalonica. So let's read, if you'd like to follow with me, in Acts 17, starting in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sword, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they had found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus." And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they had heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. 
And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether these things were so. So how did the church at Thessalonica come into being? Well, let's let's break that down and let's figure that out right here. And, and we don't have to work too hard because we just read how it happened. Paul went there and he began to proclaim Christ in the synagogue of, of the Jews, of course. Now, lest you think that this is some kind of anti-Semitic rant, Jesus was the God-man, but he was born to the Jewish people. Paul was Jewish. Everybody in the synagogue was Jewish, those that believed and those that rejected. So it's not anti-Semitic in any way. It's just making the point that among those in the synagogue, many placed their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And that's how the church was born. Well, let's learn a little bit about the city. The city was on two great Roman highways. One of those was the Ignatian Way. It was well connected to the travelers of the Roman Empire. And we know that this is a historical account. And I mean, we know that anyway, because we believe the Bible. But if I had to prove that this is a historical account here, I would prove it this way. I would say, well, Dr. Luke, who was the author of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, he used a word in Acts 17 in one of the verses where it says that they, they took him to the rulers of the city. That word rulers is polytarchs, and it is the only place it is found in Greek, that like when archaeologists have been out digging up things, they, they have dug up inscriptions that refer to the polytarchs in Thessalonica. That was the name for the rulers there. And so Luke uses that word, and guess what? Archaeologists dug up plaques, and there was that word on the plaques. So Acts is not made up. It was actually historical, the account of how the church came to be. And after Paul had to leave Thessalonica, of course, he went to Berea. But sometime later, he wrote a letter back to the Thessalonian church. So the church was born when he preached Christ. And I want to read to you what a great Bible expositor, G. Campbell Morgan, had to say. It was the first epistle he wrote to European Christians. And in it, the fundamental things of the Christian life are very clearly set forth. Many people believe that it was actually not only the first letter to the Christians in Europe that, that were there in Greece and Thessalonica, but it may have been the first church letter that Paul actually wrote, and this would have been around 52 AD, certainly no, no earlier probably than 48 AD. So some others believe that maybe Galatians was before that. So we're not, we don't have to be dogmatic about it, but it's a very early letter to the churches that Paul wrote. He wrote many, of course, but this was 
possibly the first or certainly among the early ones. Well, when Paul founded the church there and he thought about them later, he wanted to be sure that they were standing firm in the faith. Now, even before we get into 1 Thessalonians, I want to explain something to you that if you're a new believer in Christ or you're not yet a Christian, or maybe you've been around the church a while, but your, your pastors and teachers have not done their job and taught you about this, I want to explain to you what the rapture of the church is. The rapture of the church is a Bible doctrine. It's in the Bible. Now, the first time we see someone raptured, and that is the idea of they are, they are, are taken up bodily, living into heaven, the first reference that we have in the Bible to that is in Genesis 5, verse 22. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now, lest you say, uh, well, that means he died, right? Well, everybody else we read in here, you know, they, they lived and, and they died, right? You see what I'm saying? They lived and died. He lived and died. He begat children and so on. Well, here, Enoch, it just says one day that he was not, for God took him. So Enoch did not die. Now, that's, that's pretty amazing. God took him into heaven. And why did he do that? Well, we know from Hebrews 11, Verse 5, it says there, you don't have to look there, just write it down and you can look it up later. Hebrews 11, 5, and uh, uh, 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was translated. That's the same idea of being taken up. Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So the reason God raptured Enoch is he has such a close relationship in walking with the Lord that God said, you know what? You're not even going to die. You're just coming right now into heaven. And God raptured Enoch. So uh, that's the first example of that. And then we see it again, I think it's 2 Kings, I believe I'm right on that, 2 Kings chapter 2, the great prophet Elijah. And we read in verse 1 there, and it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah, same idea, take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Now, <clears throat> I'm not going to go into everything that they talked about and did right after that verse, but I want you to go down to verse uh, 11. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire, and horses of fire, 
and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And then you read further there in uh, 2 Kings 2, and you'll find out that uh, some of the young preacher boys wanted to see if they could find Elijah uh, dead in a valley or something somewhere. They couldn't find him. God visibly, literally, physically took him straight into heaven. Now, I know what you're saying right now. You're saying, but, 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 Ed, that's all Old Testament. Oh, wait, whatever. Hey, let's let's see something else then. Let's go to, um, let's see, to John chapter 14, because here Jesus talks, not in great detail, but I believe here he talks about the rapture of the church, because this does not match what we know about about the the return of Christ to the earth, the second coming. It's different things are happening here, as you will see. John 14, verses 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So Christ, I believe, there is alluding to the rapture of the church. That's going to be a a completely different event than took place, um, that, that would take place at the second coming. Just completely, completely different thing. So uh, basically, this is not an unknown doctrine. It's alluded to already in the Bible. And we see the examples of that. And in fact, <clears throat> at the ascension of Christ, the ascension of Christ, we see that he is taken up into heaven bodily, physically, alive. Uh, Again, of course, after his resurrection, he is taken into heaven. And the angel said there in Acts 2, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which ye have seen go into heaven, shall so come again in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So you could say, and and I don't think this would be wrong at all, to say that Christ was raptured after his resurrection at his ascension. So over and over, we see in the Bible, not that this is an unknown thing that Paul is going to write about here, but there are clearly examples already in the Bible of believers in Christ and Christ himself actually being taken alive bodily, physically into heaven. Now, I can't explain all of that. I'm just telling you that's what is in God's word. Well, let's go to the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, 
which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the sight of God and our Father. Now let's just stop right there. Paul gives a great example here. You know, we're talking about this being a model church relating to the rapture, uh, doctrine of the rapture. Well, Paul here is a great model of a missionary evangelist. He, most of the time, did not travel alone. We see mentioned there in verse 1 that it was Paul and Silvanus, which we also know of as Silas, by the way, and Timotheus, or Timothy, as we commonly call him. They were a team. And when Paul had a missionary team with him, it was a force multiplier. I mean, what God could do through one man, through Paul, God could do even more through three men filled with the Spirit ministering together as a team. So Paul is very wise to do that. As I look back across my church ministry, I wish I'd have done that a lot more. And given a chance, I would do it that way, uh, you know, again, if I had to do it again. Well, I remember one time we had Southern Baptist pastor Johnny Hunt from First Baptist Church Woodstock uh, come down to our church and, and do a leadership night for our deacons and teachers. And I remember that he brought uh, someone with him and he was investing into that young man because that young man was new in the ministry or going into the ministry. And he was, in other words, he didn't just come by himself. He brought someone and basically said, I want you to minister with me. I want you to watch and be part of this. And it was a great night. One of my uh, friends from long ago, Bill Purvis, pastor of Cascade Hills Church in Columbus, Georgia, same model just like Paul, taking younger men with him and training them in the ministry and the very doing of the ministry. So Paul was there, and we, of course we know he was the great apostle, but Silas was there. Silas accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey. Actually, he served in jail with Paul. <laughs> Paul went to jail? Yeah, the town before in Philippi, had thrown Paul and Silas into jail and actually put them in chains and stocks and bonds and all of that, and, and they were beaten for their faith in Christ. Silas and Paul had suffered for the truth of the gospel, and you can see that in Acts 16, 19 to 30. And then, of course, Timothy was there too. Timothy was a great example of a multicultural. What I mean by that is his mother was Jewish, his father was a Greek, and apparently an unbeliever in Christ. And so Timothy had his feet in both worlds of those who believed in God and those, those who did not. And he also was considered by Paul to be his uh, true son in the faith, like the son that Paul had never had. And Paul invested his life in raising up Timothy to be a great young pastor. So we see that they go to Thessalonica and there's a church there. Well, we saw how it was founded in Acts 17, but I want you to think about this. They went to a pagan town, and the, the people there worshipped idols. 
Now, there was a synagogue there, that's true, but only, only some in the synagogue believed. So, yes, there were Jewish believers in the early uh, founding of the church at Thessalonica that Paul was involved in, and they quickly, I'm sure, won many of these pagans who formerly had worshipped idols to Christ. That There was a church in Thessalonica. I want to tell you, friends, it was a miracle of God. It's amazing that today someone can go into a foreign country which may reject the true God of, of the Bible, reject the Lord Jesus Christ as God. The gospel can be preached, and some people will come to faith in God and place their faith in Christ as their Savior and Lord, and a church is born. That simply is miraculous. There is power, my friends, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think in the West, we are not as conscious of that because we, we are surrounded on every corner by churches, especially if you live in the South. Now, that may not be that way everywhere in the United States, but again, uh, pound for pound, inch for inch, there's more churches in the United States all over the place than you see everywhere else in the world. So we are probably not as cognizant of that, but if you go into a foreign culture that has previously rejected Jesus Christ as God and you preach the gospel, God will start a church there. And it may be a small start, but amazing things quickly happen. Why do I say that? Well, Paul says in verse 2, we read it, that he, he, every time he thought about them, he just thanked God for them. And he prayed for them often. In fact, um, notice that he says, making mention of you in our prayers. So Silas and Timothy were also praying for the Thessalonian church. And he, the reason is, verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of love. So they, they were involved in the pleasant work of... Um, Excuse me, I'm getting that backwards. They, they were involved in the, the heavy labor of love for Christ. I'm sorry, I'm getting this all out of whack here, and I, I'm looking right at it. I'm sorry, let me start over. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith is what I'm trying to say. So when Paul thought about them, he thought about the fact that they did that, that pleasant work of faith. They... they gladly and willingly put themselves to work in spreading the gospel and ministering the church. But you know, when you do that, there's also a harder part of that labor. And it's interesting that he says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. There's two different words used there for work of faith and labor of love. The word labor is a different word. It's not the same word as the word work. Work is ergon, and then here, the labor of love is kopos. This was the really hard grunt work of love. I'm going to tell you, it is hard for us as believers to love each other because there's so much in us that's not like Christ, right? And we have to work really hard in order to, to show the proper love to one another and to a world which basically hates us. Paul said, you know, I think about your work of faith and your labor of love, and here's an interesting thing, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The word for patience there is hupomone. It means to get under a heavy load and stay with it. You just bear up under intense weight. They had a patience of hope. That is, they believed that the Lord Jesus Christ would return. And notice this is the first mention in the New Testament of that wonderful trilogy of faith, hope, and love. Their work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. So Paul is, just loves to pray for them because he sees everything that God has done. And remember, this church started after only a three-weekend ministry of the Apostle Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. <clears throat> they were there three Sabbath days. Now, we don't know exactly how many days they were there, but three Sabbaths were involved in it. So I'm going to say about three weeks, maybe a little bit more than that. It may have only been 14 days, a Sabbath, a week, uh, let, let's see, a Sabbath, and then another week. So, you know, so 14 days in there, right? So two, three, four weeks, maybe not very long. But in spite of the, the briefness of the ministry, what a powerful church was planted. And if you today are thinking of planting a church, I want you to know that, that when you do that right, you're not planting a church. God's planting a church through you. Now, as Paul thought about this, he thought, well, you know, and we're going to see this mentioned here in the letter to 1 Thessalonians, they had some problems, and Paul wrote to correct some of those problems. But man, when he thought about them, he was just proud of them. Not proud of what he did. I don't mean it like that. In the South, we talk about being proud of somebody like, we're just happy for them. We're just so thrilled at what God has done in their life. And that's how Paul felt about this church. But I want you to zero in on that patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see as we go through 1 Thessalonians that even though this, this church had only had Paul's ministry for a very brief time, and even when he wrote to them, it was still a fairly young church, Paul thought about them and he thought about all that he invested in them. They had a, a great hope in the rapture of the church because the rapture of the church is mentioned in every single chapter of 1 Thessalonians, every one of them. And some of their problems centered around doctrinal questions about the timing of the rapture, when it would occur. And so we know that Paul had taught them about this already as a very, very young church. Sometimes I hear well-meaning people say, well, you know, we need to lead people to Christ, but all those things about you know, the book of the Revelation and the rapture of the church and the return of Christ and Bible prophecy, that's just really complicated and we don't need to teach them about that. You're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And even though Christ did not give great detail about it, he taught his disciples before he was crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended, he taught them a great amount of truth about last things or eschatology or a Bible prophecy about the future. He did. 
And Paul did too, following Christ's example, when he founded that church. If I had a church to plant again, I did that once. If I had to do it all over again, probably the first, I don't know, 30 sermons I did there would be about Bible prophecy. (laughs) And right about now, some of you are saying, man, you know, I don't know, this idea of the rapture of the church, you know, my... My priest or pastor says, you know, it's just, uh, you know, we don't really understand it. And, you know, it's just metaphorical and all that. Oh, no, they're wrong. (laughs) They're clearly wrong. And maybe you're having trouble believing in the rapture because you've not been properly taught, correctly taught from the Bible, from the words of Jesus about that. But I want to ask you a question. Which is harder to believe in, the resurrection of Christ or to believe in the rapture of the church. Now my point is this, if you truly believe in the resurrection of Christ, that is way harder to believe in than to believe that a resurrected Christ can rapture his church. You see what I mean? So if you already trust Christ and trust the word about the resurrection, it shouldn't be a big deal to trust the Lord about the rapture of the church, even though you may not fully understand it. And by the way, this is probably not as complicated as some believers want to make it. And I'm going to give you an example. I know that some of you out there are big Star Trek fans. Now, I don't care at all for the Star Trek movies that were made after the series Star Trek was on television, I don't know, what was it, 50 years ago. I like those programs. But I remember from those that they had the tractor beam that would, uh, you know, beam me up, Scotty, and they they would be uh, transported somehow, you know, from the planet they were on back to the Starship Enterprise. And they had the ability to to, um, basically get a hold of something so it couldn't get away through that tractor beam. You follow what I'm saying? Hey, Think about this just a minute. If the if a human, you know, TV writer can sit down and think of that, and maybe who knows, one day somebody may invent a way to do all that. Why is it so hard for people to believe that an almighty supernatural God can rapture a church? I don't get it. I don't understand why that's so hard unless you might not actually be a believer in Christ. Then I can see that would be really hard. All right, let's go to verse four. Paul says here, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. So uh, he, well, let's just keep reading. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. We see here, he says in verse 4, that that he knows that they are the chosen of God. They are the elect. Well, Brother Ed, I just have a problem with that, that word election. Hey, then you just have a problem with it. It's in the Bible. In fact, it's right here. God chose the Thessalonian believers because he knew they would believe in Christ and he chose them to believe in Christ. 
And Paul says basically the evidence of that is for our gospel came not unto you in word only. In other words, Paul and Silas did not come into Thessalonica and just um, give a great speech and the church was born. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. And as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. So when they preached the gospel, there began to be the moving of the power of God. And I've heard myself preach sometimes, and I felt like there was no power there. I've heard myself preach sometimes, and there was power I could not account for. And I've heard that with other preachers as well. But when a preacher preaches the Bible and the power of God is on him, great things happen. And that's what happened in Thessalonica. It happened to the extent that not only did they become believers in Christ and began to follow Paul and the Lord's word, but having received the word in much affliction with joy the Holy Ghost. So they, they did all of this in the middle of a lot of trouble, a lot of pressure or tribulation, and yet they were not morose about it or sad about it. They were filled with the joy of the Holy Ghost, the joy of Jesus, the joy of God was flowing in their lives. I'm going to tell you, friends, if you can go through trouble and still keep the smile of heaven on your face and your heart, that's not you. That's the joy of the Holy Ghost coming through you, where you gladly suffer the problems and troubles that you go through. And by the way, here's a little thing where we get a little clue. Sometimes people who dismiss the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation period that is coming on the earth in the future, and we'll get more into that as we go into Thessalonians, but one of the things that is often said is, well, you only believe in the rapture of the church because you don't want to suffer for God. You don't want to go through persecution. Well, and then they proceed to lecture us about how we are going to go through persecution and affliction and trouble and all that. Well, of course we are. We're in the world and we're in the wrong army as far as the world's concerned. We're in Jesus's army. We're on the wrong team as far as the world's concerned. We're on Jesus's team. Yeah, we are looked upon as hated and as enemies, and yet we're in the winning army and we're on the winning team. But that doesn't mean just because we're going to win the war, that we won't be wounded in the battle. This church was born in the middle of this kind of trouble. Paul had just been through trouble and tribulation in Philippi. He came here, he runs into more of it, and they send him on his way to Berea, about a hundred miles away, I think it is. So he goes there and, and more trouble breaks out. So the, the charge that people only believe and hope in the rapture of the church is because they don't want to go through the tribulation period, that's just silly. I mean, there may be some people who hope in the, the, the uh, rapture of the church for that reason, but, you know, they just they need to pay more attention to the Bible. But my point is, 
I fully understand that when we live godly for Christ Jesus in this world, we're going to suffer persecution. We will go through trouble and tribulation in this world. But like Jesus said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So that, that has nothing to do with whether or not the Lord will rapture the church before that specific time called the tribulation. In fact, Christ himself called the last half of it the great tribulation. So there is a period coming, but I want you to know this church understood that no matter what they went through here before the tribulation spoken of in prophecy, that, that they would either pass away and enter into the Lord's presence or the Lord would return before that and take them bodily, physically into heaven. So they weren't worried about or should not have been worried about the tribulation. You'll actually see that some people had gotten them, false teachers had gotten them off track, and one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter was to correct that, uh, that false teaching that was starting to abound there at Thessalonica. So great things happen. This church is born. They're looking forward to, you know, if they die first, they'll be with the Lord in heaven, but if they they live long enough, they may be alive when the rapture of the church occurs. And that's certainly my outlook and the outlook of all who walk closely with the Lord and pay careful attention to His words. So that idea that we only believe in a pre-tribulation rapture because we're afraid to suffer, that's just incorrect. That's incorrect. In fact, right now, I'm do I am doing everything I can to provide enough evidence to anybody who wants it that number one i am a true believer in jesus christ and uh number two and this is just me personally i'm an old school patriotic american who loves god <laughs> now you may live in another country and say well that doesn't describe me but hopefully number one does that uh that i am actually a believer in christ i would be so disappointed if persecution broke out in in our country in america to the extent that christians were being jailed simply because they were christians or killed simply because they were christians i would be so disappointed if there was not enough evidence to get me in trouble now i'm not being glib about that i'm just saying i recognize it could happen dl moody the great evangelist was asked once did he have enough faith to die for jesus and D.L. Moody gave a very wise answer. He said, I hope so, but I believe if that time comes, God will give me the grace to die for him. So in other words, I don't think I have it on my own, but if called to suffer for Christ, everything I need to do that and go through that will be provided. So Paul suffered before Thessalonica. He suffered there. He suffered after it. And we suffer to one degree or another, and it could get a lot worse. That has nothing to do with Christ rapturing the church prior to the tribulation period. So how, how much of an influence did this church have? How, you know, it's not so much how much of, of, of God did the Thessalonians have, but how much of the Thessalonians did God have? In other words, were they all in on this? Yeah. Watch this. 
Verse 7, so that ye were examples, or we would say examples, so that ye were examples, uh, models, <laughs> so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. So the other churches that, that were already existing in that area and the ones that they had a hand in planting they were examples, they were models too, and that's why we have a model church for the doctrine of the rapture of the church. So that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, now those are parts of Greece, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. So it's sort of like Paul could say, our work here is done because the Thessalonian church began to reach their entire region with the gospel of Christ. And I believe that a major reason they were able to do that is because they they had the ironclad assurance that no matter how hard it was here, they would never go through the tribulation period because Christ, they either would die first and be with the Lord, as we're going to see that um, uh, as we go in Thessalonians, or if they lived long enough, Christ would take them bodily, physically, alive into heaven in the rapture of the church, and they would not go through the tribulation period, the wrath of God on planet earth. And verse nine, he goes on, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And watch this, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, right there is mentioned the rapture of the church. And the wrath of God is the tribulation period that is coming in the future on planet earth, which is rejecting, by and large, rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore God has no other choice than to judge the world. With a church, the Thessalonians knew they would not go through that. And so what were they doing? Well, they were waiting for Jesus from heaven. And Jesus had already, as we know, been raised from the dead. And he, he's the one who is our deliverer from the wrath to come. Now, it doesn't say he will deliver us in it, uh, during it, out of it, he delivers us from the wrath to come. Think of it as like a, a wall is set up and the church does not go into that period. We're not saved in it. We're not even in it. We're saved from the wrath to come. Now again, that doesn't mean that we think that, uh, well, we hope there's a rapture so we don't have to suffer. That's, that's just not right thinking. And that's not what the doctrine of the rapture is about. So let me wrap this up. That's as far as we're going to go today in First Thessalonians. Let's wrap this up right here. 
I just want to make some observations. You may want to jot these down. God can save idol-worshiping pagans and start a church that has a massive soul-winning ministry and bring a region to Christ, and he can do that in a New York minute. Paul walked into town, was only there three Sabbaths before they, the uh, unbelievers forced him out of town, and yet that type of church was born, took life, and began to grow in the doctrines of the Word of God and the good news about Jesus and spread the gospel all over their region. Paul said it was like, a, it was, the idea is like it was a loudspeaker that everyone in that region could hear. So that's, that's number one. Number two is this. So, so the doctrine of the rapture of the church fuels... F-U-E-L-S, like uh, gas or diesel or uh, nuclear energy. So the doctrine of the rapture fuels evangelism, not stops it. It fuels it. And I'll bet you this. I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I would bet you this. The most evangelistic soul-winning church in your town guaranteed they believe in the rapture of the church that Christ is coming for his church before the tribulation period. Now, I would also be right, probably, in saying that most of the churches in your town that are dying or dead rarely, if ever, talk about this major doctrine of the Christian faith. And when they do, they don't have anything good to say about it. Or if they do say something good about it, it's so vague that it has no impact on the members of that church. Here's a third observation. It is biblical to teach new believers about the rapture and to build churches who believe in the rapture of the church. It's biblical because that's exactly what Paul did here when he went to Thessalonica. Number four, b- believers and churches are urged to look for the rapture of the church, which delivers the church from the coming wrath of the tribulation. And you'll see that all the way through this short letter. And then number five, Believers and churches will go through many tribulations or troubles of many kinds, persecutions, maybe even death for some prior to the rapture of the church, but that has no bearing on when the timing of the rapture of the church occurs, that the Lord delivers the church from the tribulation period. I hope this has been an eye-opener for you today. And maybe you're saying, man, I, I never even heard any of this. You, if you're a regular attender of a church and you don't know what I've taught you today, you might prayerfully consider hunting for a church which will preach the Word of God like I've just done and teach you about Bible prophecy, the rapture of the church, the tribulation, all of that, 
as well as everything else that it should teach, and get involved in reaching people before it is absolutely too late for them to trust in Christ. Now, we do not know the times and seasons, friends. We do not. But I will tell you, I've, I've been around church and the Christian faith for a long time. And I, I have read the Bible through cover to cover more than 40 times, for sure. I've had a lot of great Bible teachers invest in my life, and I've done my best to study and teach the Word. And I'm telling you, I believe we live in a time and an age where, where more, it's clearer to me than it's ever been that the Lord could come for His church at any time. I cannot think of anything that has to happen prior to that. And as I look around the world today, I think it could be very close. My prayer for you is if you're not yet a believer in Christ, you will indeed trust Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. If you are, I hope that your faith will be renewed and encouraged and you will join the work of reaching a lost, Christ-rejecting planet for Jesus Christ. Now, if you're listening and you need spiritual counsel, I'm going to say a number twice that you can call and get your questions answered and get information to help you grow in your new faith. 888-537-8720. 888-537-8720. Call that number during uh, regular business hours, 8 to 5, Monday through Friday. Eastern time in the United States. So figure out where that is, you know, when you would have to call wherever you live. Maybe you live in Hong Kong. I don't know. But uh, it'll be easy to get information that will help you. Tell other people about our podcast so that they can begin to grow in their knowledge of the Lord and His Word as well. Thank you so much for listening today. My prayer is that you will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and be a wonderful witness for Him before He comes. God bless you. Bye-bye.